Morning. How are you? Sharon was kidding me that we have lots of space up here so I could show off my dance moves. I said, listen, I just pray that I get up on the stage without breaking my leg. So we made it for half of it. But we're, we're uh, going through the Gospel of John and really hoping that the Gospel of John goes through us. We're reading this Gospel in a way where we really want God to reveal uh, in more complete ways and deeper ways who he is to us. And it's critical because in today's story, a person gets caught in a space in their, their story. They get stuck in their story where they can't get free. And it colors their picture of who God is. It colors their picture of who they are. And it colors the picture of the possibility of change. Because of my work, I've had lots of people come to me that way. Mary came to me, shocked that she was where she was. She tells me that she just was lonely. And so started a conversation with someone online, and she said, I can't believe it's, it's landed here, that I've done what I have did, and I am where I am. She says, I feel hopelessly trapped, stuck. I took a breath and I, I said, Mary, what, what's the clearest thing that you've heard from Jesus? And her head drops. And she stares at the floor for a long time and then mumbles to me, Jesus doesn't talk to women like me. Hmm. We'll see. James is a likable young man, grew up in a Christian home, knew him for years, bright, cheerful. But when he comes to see me, he's absolutely wrecked, undone. He says, Pastor Mark, how did I get here? And I said, where? He said, well, my curiosity took me to different places online, and now I'm in a place where I go to places I know I shouldn't be. I tell myself I'm not going to do that, and I find myself doing the very thing I don't want to do. I said, James, have you talked to the Lord about it at all? And he freezes for a moment. He shakes his head no, saying, the Lord would never talk to me, not now. He wouldn't? We'll see. Wes, on the other hand, comes to see me, and his hands are literally shaking from the strain he's under. I've known him for years. He's a fine man, Christian businessman. He collapses in the chair, and he says, I'm ruined. My business partner has filed charges, and the embezzlement is plain as day. I can't believe I'm here. It all started with Madeline's medical bills, and I thought maybe I could borrow a little bit of money from the business, and then I would pay it back. But now, I'm a thief, and it's going to kill her for sure. I said, Wes, have you prayed at all about this? Have you asked the Lord what he wants to say? And he responds right away, no, no, I, I know I should, but I can't. I got myself into this, and I got to get myself out. I earned this. This is my trouble. I made this bed. I got to sleep in it. And anyhow, Jesus isn't interested in my stupidity and woe. 
He isn't? We'll see. When you hear these vignettes, what do you hear? What do you hear? Shame. Shame has really got them. What else? Hopelessness. There's no way out. What else? Loneliness. Yeah, you see, when our thirsts lead us astray, we get to this place where, first of all, we can't believe we are where we are. How did we get here? And then it really colors how we see ourselves, the shame, how we see Jesus. And there's this huge chasm like, no one cares. Who could care for me? And we wonder, in a moment like this, where's God? Was he expected of us? What could we do? And this story in John 4, if you want to open your Bibles, is an incredible portrait it's a place we need to go today to say, what, where is God? What is God like when we're someplace we shouldn't be? Lost, troubled, castaways. By the way, don't worry, those weren't their real pictures, and that's not their real names. <laughs> but the stories are real. They are real. And we have our own stories. So opening in John 4, we're starting in verse 3. This is what John writes. So he, Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. That's not true. I'll explain that in a minute. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son. You see, any upright Jew, certainly a religious leader, would not go through that God-forsaken territory of Samaria. What they would do is they would swing around the Jordan, head north, and go back over the Jordan, land up here in Galilee. They wouldn't cross through Samaria. That's like when you drive south, you avoid Chicago at all costs. But there is something going on in the mind and heart of this Savior, that shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Something's happening here. For the last two weeks, Brennan unpacked John 3.16, emphasizing in the second message that God so loved the world. Not just Israel, not just Abraham's children, but the world. And Jesus is on a world tour, and so he is going into all the world. And he's got a divine appointment that we're going to read about. Let's read on. Verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Interesting. Nicodemus comes at night. This one's going to be in broad daylight. Let me say this. If you ever wonder if Jesus understands our life, read a verse like this. He's the God-man. He's come to earth as this priest, this intercessor, this mediator, this savior. He experiences life as we do. Thirst, hunger, rejection, misunderstanding, ridicule. 
He's experienced it all. And he's here and he's sitting at this well. And I want you to get the picture in your mind in this near Middle Eastern area. This is like sitting out in the hot sun in August in Phoenix, Arizona. Are you with me? It's about 125. And off in the horizon, a woman is making a long trek to the well. This is peculiar. It's not how it's supposed to be. In fact, you've heard from the different people testifying about Uganda and the well during there. The, the women and the children go together. It's dangerous to go alone. They don't go at high noon when it's hot. They go early in the day or late at night. What's the story of this woman? She knows she can't go with the ladies. They don't invite her. In fact, they don't talk to her. They talk about her. She's also very aware that she probably doesn't fit. She's a castaway, a reject. So day after day, she risks this long, lonely walk, which has partly become relief from the stairs, the judgmental stairs, the whispers, the turnaway faces. And it's partly been a, a place where she's kind of viewed it as a personal penance. I deserve this. It's all going to change in a moment. When you think that you're so far away, just then Jesus needs to go. He's coming to your well. He's not removed. He's on tour still this day, right now. The story opens. As a Samaritan woman comes, Jesus starts a conversation. There's no way she's going to. He says, will you give me a drink? That seems reasonable. It's hot. You've got something to draw from the well. She's shocked. No one talks to her, ever. People turn away from talking to her. They talk about her. They don't enlist her. They don't ask her. And this guy sitting here alone, who is apparently a Jew, who should never talk to a Samaritan, starts the conversation. Let it be known, people of God, that in those moments when you think God would never talk to me, God can't talk to me, God's not interested in talking to me, read the book. Read the book. There's no one, nowhere, he won't talk to. There's a lesson here for us to grab hold of in our moments when we feel despair, where we feel stuck, where we feel like we can't get free. The lesson is be open. Be open. Are you even open to the possibility that God is going to come today to your situation, to your struggle? to the place where you're lost, to the person you're carrying in your heart? Are you even open to the possibility that Jesus on tour is coming to your well today? It's so easy in the moment of despair to write it off and say, no one will help me. No one can help me. I earned this. I deserve this. I'm so stupid. I'm hopeless. 
God couldn't possibly care. God could never talk to me. And look in the story. He goes straight up to a place to have a conversation. To start it. Let's see what happens. Jesus answers her. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This sounds like a deal. Look at her response. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? You see, what, in this moment, what Jesus is doing and what you can see, how masterful God is. See, this is God, the perfect God. He's not rushing the conversation. He's not forcing the conversation. He's saying, talk to me. Talk to me. Stay with me. He's crafting this safe place. And he's setting little clues out in the story for her to catch. Just like when I would play hide-and-seek with my kids and they would start to get frustrated, a little nervous that they couldn't find me like I disappeared from earth. Dad, Dad, I would <coughs> cough or pound on wherever I was hiding. Ah, there you are. You see, Jesus wants us to get it. Jesus is being like my, one of my favorite uh, teachers, an organic chemistry teacher. I would have never passed organic chemistry except for Dr. Scott. We call him Dr. Scorch. He would, he would be writing something out on the board. And then all of a sudden he would stop and he would go, Wow, look at that! Look at that! Look at that! That would be something that would be really important to know on the next test. <laughs> Even Spencer could catch it. Jesus is working with her to catch it. And he goes a step further and he says, Listen, everyone who drinks this water... They'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Ah, she's thinking. Sir, give me this water. Why? So that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. In other words, so I don't have to keep living out of this tragic story with the pain of rejection, suffering in isolation. Will you please quench my thirst? It's about to get real. It has to. In order for that water to visit her soul, you've got to cross into a place. I've got to cross into a place. We all have to cross into a place. And he makes a simple request. Go call your husband. Go call your husband. Now, how do you read this? 
You see, I knew it was God coming after. Do you read it like, go call your husband then? Or go call your husband, sinner. How do you read it? How do you hear Jesus' tone? How do you see his face? How do you hear his heart? He's gently drawing her out of the darkness into the light. But she has to step. She answers with what she can. I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands. And the man that you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Woo! This is up close and personal, people. The places in her life that she wished would go away, the marks that it's left on her life, the things that people talk about it, here it is. We have to go there. If we don't go there, here's the problem. You will never know how much you're really loved until you're known completely. Because if you are hiding something in that back pocket, if you've got something that's stored away that you won't let God see, you won't let your loved ones see, then in your mind there is a real big space where the enemy can come along and say, oh, they don't really love you because if they knew that about you, it'd be over. Jesus knows if we're going to clean this wound, we've got to get it all out. And so we, too, learn from the story of this incredibly courageous woman that in order for us to be free, we've got to risk honesty. You see, confession is to say the same thing as what God is seeing. It's to agree, oh, you see it. John writes in one of his last letters, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But you won't know that kind of love if you don't risk being known. And in those moments, it's awkward. I was telling the first service that our son Joe, our oldest boy, is a chef. He's a really good cook. We should have realized this. He would always be messing around in the kitchen and, you know, always sampling things. And I think it was probably like his fourth or fifth birthday. He had, in his mind, he wanted this big chocolate cake, which Betsy worked hard on and baked and had it there ready for his birthday. We were waiting for people to come to, to do the celebration. And, of course, a four-year-old's got lots of patience, lots of patience. And so people are coming in, and then I walk by, and I look at the cake, and there's a claw mark in the side of the cake. I suspected I knew who did that, whereupon I searched for my son, Joe. Joe, what happened to the cake? I don't know. Chocolate frosting all over his mush. You don't know what happened to the cake? It looks like someone like, took a bunch of frosting and maybe ate it. You don't know anything about that. Joe, why don't you go in, take a look in the bathroom, mirror, 
and then let's talk. And there was a long space. Because I'm sure when he stepped and looked in the mirror, he was like, oh, oh, oh. The woman at the well is looking in a mirror. The difference is, it's not a mirror looking back. It's a Savior who will not leave you in the state you are. So, in this moment, I mean, can you imagine? God has come into your world, has told you about your secrets. So, she does what a lot of us would do. Let's talk about something else. She says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Let's talk about you. Enough about me. I mean, my life is boring. You see, in this moment, God is pacing with her. But the beautiful thing in this, as uncomfortable as she is, she doesn't run. She doesn't hide. She doesn't try to make excuses. She doesn't fix blame on someone else. She stands in the light. As uncomfortable as it is, she's risking honesty. But all of us in those moments, we shuffle our feet. We get nervous. We think, oh, can we just step aside for a moment? So she goes on and she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. I can see like you're a godly man. Let's talk theology. Let's talk about where this happens. And Jesus in his gentleness, notice this is God. When you and I have fallen on our face, this is God. Notice he's not screaming, ranting, yelling at you like your football coach or your teacher or some other reckless person in your life who screams at you. This is Jesus who is now bending down and saying, okay, I understand. It's close. I get it. So he works with her. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come right now in your midst, in your presence, right now here at Bridgewood Community Church in Blaine, Minnesota. Right now the time has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they, that's what he's after. In other words, what he's saying is my father longs for people to come into the house of God just as they are. No makeup on, no armor on, no masks on. Just come into the presence of God right as you are. Open up your story. Does it hurt? Yes. Does it feel scary? Yes. Do you want to be free? Yes, come as you are. This story, whenever I get into it, I love it, and it, it, it works on me. And I, I, I just think about all the different times when I, I tried to look good for God, make, somehow make it up to God. And I read this and I realize that's not at all 
what he's after. What he wants is, Mark, will you please come in, sit down, and tell me what's really going on in your deepest place. Let's do truth. Basically, Jesus is saying, if you want a real life, then get real with me. And so the woman takes another step and she goes, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She's tracking. She's still a little hesitant. But she says, I know when this Messiah comes, he's going to explain everything, including how I can get free. Now, you can look at all kinds of places in all the Gospels, and in most instances, Jesus is telling people after he's healed them, don't tell anybody about this. He avoids the public limelight. He doesn't want people to announce who he is. But in this moment where spirit and truth is being exercised and a woman has opened up her story, has stayed in the light, has gone face to face with the living God, she gets a marvelous revelation. Jesus, astoundingly, to a Samaritan woman who's been married five times and now has a live-in lover, goes, <clears throat> let me introduce myself. I am Jesus the Christ. Plain as day. And in the moments of our life when we are struggling to really let God know who we really are or what we're really struggling with, that it mars our vision. You see, she had to risk being known to know that. We do too. We do too. Those moments where we say, God, where are you? I wonder sometimes if God says back, Mark, where are you? Would you please stop hiding? Would you tell me what's really going on? Would you bring that to me? But you see, in order for me to do that, I've got to see him as he really is. I've got to see the heart of the shepherd and what he cares for me, that he's coming to me, that he's starting the conversation with me, not because he wants me uncomfortable, he wants me to get out of the discomfort and to move into real life. And in those moments, you and I need to keep the faith. Not believing what our circumstances have said, not believing what our shame says, not believing what our sin says, none of that. We go, I read the story in John 4, and this Jesus is my Jesus, and he's coming into my situation not to harass me, not to yell at me, but to deliver me. Don't buy the lies that are out there about our Jesus. There is no one like him who leaves the 99 to come looking for the one, who will not snuff a smoldering wick, break a bruised reed, who bows down low to lift up. That's our Jesus. No one's too far, no one's too low. No one's too broken. 
No one. You see, when we have this real encounter, it sets life right. One of my favorite songwriters is a Christian musician. He's not that popular now. Michael Card. Do you know Michael Card? He's a great lyricist, an incredible poet, and a wonderful man of God. And in the song Jubilee, he has this line that so poetically captures the essence of the woman at the well. And when we're at our well, he says, to be so completely guilty and given to despair, but then to look into the judge's face and see a Savior there. In this moment, all the years of anguish, all the struggles that she's had, all the whispers she's heard, all the voices that have been in her head are now starting to drain out because she's had an encounter with the living truth who's invited her into truth, and she has no recourse. She has, she says here, she leaves her water jar. Brennan said to me between service, he goes, she didn't need that water anymore. She had the real water. I said, Amen. She had it. She runs back into the very town where people rejected her, talked about her, mocked her, ridiculed, cast her away, left her for dead. She's running back. Why does a person do that? She runs back and she goes, oh my gosh, you guys, come quickly. Come on with me. There's a person who showed me everything I've ever done. Even the naughty things. All the bad stuff. That's weird. That's really weird. When I was a kid, I craved family. I was telling a group of people this yesterday. I had a friend, John Gallo. I have to find him someday. He came from a big Catholic family. And there's just something beautiful about his family. And my family was disorganized and crazy. And I thought, well, it's my family. But I had learned some things about John and his family. And so what would happen at night was we'd be playing and then John's mom would call him for dinner. And he would run across the field to his house and I would go one Mississippi, two Mississippi, and I'd, I'd count up to like 40 Mississippi, and I'd run the same route. And I'd slide under the porch of his house to listen to the family have dinner. All oh, the sounds, the sounds you'd hear. I don't know if they had, they're a big Catholic family. I think they had 400 kids. <laughs> and they would sit in this huge oak picnic table I never had a meal there, but I saw it once when I was in the house and just looked at it like a holy place. Oh my gosh, look at that. And I would lay under the porch and I would listen to his dad in the tone of his voice. He would say, Sharon, what happened today? Tell us about your day. Brian, what was the highlight? TL, what was the highlight? Mary, what was the highlight? He'd go around the table and he would draw his kids out. And they would eat and they would laugh. It would go on for hours. Big Italian family. I don't know what I would have done if someone would have found me and invited me up. 
I don't think I would have been able to go. I don't, I, I don't know. I certainly would not have thought I would have fit, not with that group. But God was going to come to my town. And on October 17, 1980, Mark Spencer was laying underneath the porch of life, listening. I didn't believe in God. Jesus came and said, I see you. Come on. Sit right here next to me at my table. I couldn't wait to tell people that I'd been invited to God's big dinner. I did what she did. I don't think it's supposed to be one and done. I think any time we find ourselves stuck under there, Jesus comes calling and says, you belong up here. So let's pray. Lord, I... Man. It's almost... In moments when you see a story like this, you go, it's almost too good to be true. But I would say this morning that it's so good it has to be true. If you're really God, if you're really a Savior, if we're really your sheep, yep, it's got to be true. I pray this morning as we go back to worship that places in our heart where we have felt bound up by shame or locked up, where we have felt like we've heard in our heads that not me, that's not for me, that could never happen. God's given up on me. I pray those chains would come off in the name of Jesus and the doors of grace would fly open and that people would see you for who you really are right here and now and that that light and that revelation would bring a clarity and they would see who they are to you and get up off that chair get up off that that stuck place get up out of that mud hole get get up out from that porch get up to my table and sit next to me sit next to me because I love you I love you and I know it all anyhow and I still love you so come on come on Jesus' name. Amen.
who would lead us into righteousness and would make a way one to war want to hear them bring deliverance only one way to contain it to receive it to explain it i am loved by the lord It's his power. 